Hi, my name is Martin Purnell and welcome to Off Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who go or don't go to church and for those that are just disillusioned. Please feel free, by the way, to email us at ogc at accessradio.biz, ogc at accessradio.biz and biz is spelled B-I-Z. Our Facebook page is Off Grid Christianity. Please use the above ways of communication as well. Should you have any questions for a future podcast, we will be recording in a few weeks. The subject is prayer and mental health, or as I might call it, how can I have mental health problems? I'm a Christian. Today's guest is a gentleman who is a pastor and co-host of a popular US podcast based in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The podcast is called A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar and has been described as a delicious cocktail of philosophy and spirituality. I listened to one episode where they were discussing and sampling a bourbon. I was annoyed, as it should have been an Irish whiskey, but never mind. He is pastor of Brew City Church in Milwaukee, which is still in Wisconsin, and the church sees arguments over statements of faith as a tool, as it encourages engagement. They are not a scriptural mandate. Our guest's recent Twitter account said, Yesterday I was called a false prophet, blasphemer, a wolf and a heretic, all because I don't believe in biblical inerrancy. And we wonder why young people are leaving church in droves. Another tweet stated, If you're only truly following Jesus, be ready to be rejected by Christians. So, is our guest my kind of guest? What does inerrancy mean? And what are the classic examples? Does he pronounce Milwaukee like Alice Cooper does in Wayne's World? All these questions... Better meet today's guest to find out the answer, and that is Randy Nye. Randy, thank you so much for taking valuable time. So many questions. <laughs> Where do we start? So, first of all, before we go into the, the five questions that I have here in front of me, give us a positive history, please, of Milwaukee. Well, first of all, Milwaukee, there were indigenous people lived in Milwaukee far long before my ancestors did. And there was the Potawatomi tribe and uh, Chippewa tribes here in, in the Milwaukee area. It's why we have suburban cities and towns around the area that have really, really weird names that you'd never be able to pronounce because of the indigenous influence. Milwaukee was founded in, I think, the 19th century, mid-19th century, a couple of European French explorers. Um, And then Milwaukee turned into a German, like a a home away from home for German people. Just for some reason, German people flocked to Milwaukee. And so that's why the beer uh, tradition, that's why if you see the architecture in the city of Milwaukee, it looks very German. Um, it looks European. It's pretty old for our, you know, in U.S. standards, Milwaukee is an older city and it's delightful. I mean, we have the downfall is that winter is really long here. I think we're on a pretty similar, I think you might even be further north in Belfast, but Milwaukee's a great city and particularly right now in the summertime. Yeah, I bet, I bet. So, Brew City Church, then we'll talk all about that as well, if that's okay. And did Alice Cooper pronounce Milwaukee correctly in Wayne's World? That's another question I need to know. But before we do all those things, let's go to the top five questions, if that's okay, please. Here we go. Question number one. If you could invite anybody from history for an evening meal, alive or dead, so that you could ask them questions, Randy and I, who would it be? Anyone allowed? Yeah. Because Jesus is the obvious answer, right? I mean, that's very, very clear. But... I'll say the Apostle Paul. I would love to sit down with the Apostle Paul and uh, listen to, I would love to talk about why he wrote certain things about women in the scriptures, why he wrote certain things mm-hmm. about slavery. What was his world like? Could he imagine a world like ours? And what does he think that could look like in light of being Christ followers and embodying Jesus as the church to the world around us? I'd love to know um, how much of a product of his culture as, as a Pharisee uh, seeped into his Christianity. I think there's a lot that if many of us, if we could have a sit down with the Apostle Paul in the church today, yeah, yeah, that'd be a really enlightening conversation. That's very good. Very good. Question number two, then, young Randy, could be the same answer to question number one. We'll find out. Who is your favorite biblical character or favorite biblical story or favorite parable, please? So favorite biblical character I always was partial to David when I was younger, and I think mm-hmm. I learned a little bit about David and still love and respect David, but I'm going to go with Daniel right now. Um, I really, really love the person of Daniel, what he embodies, both prophetically, but also um, in standing in resistance to the empire, profound ways, and not bending the knee to the to the way of the empire and the religion of the empire, but being faithful to Yahweh and doing so in a subversive way and changing really the course of history and being this key figure that people, I mean, the book of Revelation 
depends on the imagery that we find in the book of Daniel. So I think Daniel's a really fun crossover Old and New Testament person that we find in the Bible who has huge influence even over the last book of the Bible, which I think is one of the most underappreciated and misunderstood books of the Bible. But if we understand Revelation in light of Daniel, it's a lot easier to get. So I'm going to go with Daniel as my favorite biblical character. Great answer. Thank you very much. Indeed. Who's yours? Uh, mine. Uh, do you know what? I don't think anyone's ever asked me that. I'll come back to you on that okay. one. <laughs> I should have an answer, shouldn't I, as I came up with the questions. But my favorite uh, parable, without shadow of a doubt, is a parable of the sower. Mm. There you go. Okay. That is my answer. I want to know why. Oh, do you? How long have we got? Yeah. No, I just... I think for me, it's because I was such a reluctant Christian when I became a Christian, if you know what I mean. I'm, I'm the C.S. Lewis of Christians. So I sat down on the staircase and thinking, all right, and God, if you, you really do exist, Jesus, come into my heart, you know, and all this sort of stuff. So there were, there were no flashing lights, no fireworks or anything else like that. I haven't really got a great testimony either, like most people, you know, mm-hmm. so I've <laughs> made one up if people put me on the spot. Because yep. you know, the more fantastic it is, you know, the more believable it is, believe it or not, which is like, no. But no, a favourite parable, and I think for me, it's like the parable of seed. For me, going in, I've taken so long to germinate, so maybe I'm an oak tree, really, just waiting and growing and learning and being knocked back so many times. And you see so many other people who immediately catch the fire, but they soon wither and die, you know? So that's that's what I like. I love it. <laughs> Thank you for asking. Question three, if you were Prime Minister for the day, Randy, or... If you want to be American, as you are, and you want to be president of the United States for the day and could change any law or impose a new law, what would it be? Would I be controversial if I said I want to reverse Brexit? I'm not going to say that. I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. No, I know far too little about uh, UK politics. I'm fascinated by UK politics. I've got friends in the UK who um, I have a million questions for. We question each other about our, our country's government. So I'm going to stick with president of the US because I know what's going on a little bit more here. And this is an easy question for me. If I was president for the day and our government wasn't so messed up, um, and by that I mean... Congress was designed to work with the president to compromise and to govern and to to put laws into place that are the best for the people of the United States of America and best for the for the world and, and that, for that matter. And our government has an inability to work together, which drives me crazy. But um, for sure, I would try with the state of things that they are in the U.S. right now. I would ban all sorts of guns. Um, I would want to ban assault style r- rifles and huge magazines. And I would think about banning handguns as well. But I'd want to have a conversation, an educated conversation with some experts about what banning guns looks like, because uh, we have an epidemic, a crisis in our nation of homicide and murder and mass shootings. It blows me away that our politicians can't see the same thing and work together. And it just shows how corrupt my nation's government is that a group like the NRA can hold our children and our schools and our families and our, our nation hostage. And just to bail you out, in your opinion. <laughs> yes, in my opinion. In my opinion. I'm, I have strong feelings on that. That's one of those where, you know, pastors aren't supposed to talk about politics so much, but that's one where I, I think it's a matter of life and I'm not afraid to have be, you know, just share my yeah. opinion on it, obviously. But yeah, that's that's what I would, I think what I would do if I were president for a day right now. Yeah, no, yeah. And I, I have to say, I think over here, the majority of people living in the UK just bang their heads on the brick wall thinking, what's going on? Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine so. I've heard that similar take from many people, whether it's from Australia or Western Europe, Japan, all over the world. People just being astounded by what's going on in the, in the U.S. with no action being taken, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> this is going to be what we're going to call a podcast, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah, because I know also from America, well-meaning Christians who I know in America who have guns and they can't see a problem with it, will then turn the table on me and say, yeah, but you call yourself a Christian and you drink beer. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I make it as well, but they can't collate. Yeah. Yep. Perhaps we could talk about that on a future podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Question four, outside of family events, what has been your most enjoyable day out so far, Randy? Uh, again, really, really hard question to answer because there's so much to pick from. And most of my great day outs do involve family because I have four kids and a, and a wife. We're, we're kind of in that mode where we're all together still for a couple of more years, but I want to say it's between sporting events and uh, nature that are my two kind of like main things. Uh, in northern Wisconsin, in the state where I live, we have lakes all over the place, and um, it's 
beautiful forests and lakes littered everywhere. And so I love getting out on a lake and just being by myself, listening and watching and seeing all sorts of nature happen before me. Maybe fishing is involved. That would be a good day. It's either that or going to Lambeau Field and watching the Green Bay Packers, the greatest team, sporting team in the world, I will say, even though I know you probably have some football teams of your own that you prefer. But we play proper football, yes. not your kind of football where you run with the ball. No. Yeah, yeah. No, I understand. It's a blasphemy, but it's uh, it's it's one of my favorite things to do is to uh, be with. Uh, it feels like family when you're in a stadium yeah, yeah. full of fans that are as rabid as you are about a team and as ridiculous yeah. and nonsensical as you are about a team and emotional yeah. and when your team does well there's no better feeling just about oh no i totally agree totally agree you know i've spent thousands of pounds on my stupid football team going up and down the country following them yeah yeah what's your team bristol city is that in premier league well done for saying premier and not premier or whatever well done <laughs> <laughs> now we're in the championship but next okay. season we're coming up it's it's ordained brilliant it's awesome <laughs> can't wait to see it i can't either i've been waiting ever since 1980 for us to go back up but uh, there you go wow awesome and my birthday and christmas presents from my wife is always an air ticket so i could fly over and watch them so you can't take it Brilliant. out of me yeah good answer <laughs> thank you very much indeed right sir well so many questions already milwaukee you've got a church called brew city church tell us more about it please i knew i wanted to be a pastor when i stepped into a college ministry and this particular pastor just grabbed my attention Holy Spirit spoke to me, um, and I think just like my life changed in a moment. But I thought I wanted to be a college pastor. So I worked at a big church here, a mega church, and for their college ministry. And when I saw the inner workings of the big mega church, I was pretty turned off and uh, decided to go work at a restaurant in downtown Milwaukee at a pub. And when I did that, it was actually a microbrewery with a restaurant inside. And when I did that, I met all sorts of people that I fell in love with. And I wasn't used to being around because I was a sheltered Christian kid who hadn't ever partied, who hadn't ever, I, I was just a sheltered Christian kid. And when I met these people and grew to love them and be friends with them and consider them just family, um, I realized quickly that they said, um, there's no church that we could go to and feel like we're not sticking out like a sore thumb. And that was when kind of, I think the Holy Spirit burst this dream in me. I want a church for these people. Mm. I want a church for the people who don't feel at home in church, who feel like misfits. Um, I want a church full of those kind of people. And so that was the dream from the beginning. And it's kind of why we called the church Bruce City Church as well, is that, um, A, it's just a church from and of Milwaukee and Milwaukeeans. And that is how the city is known and what it was built on in many ways. And also it's kind of a missional name. I've had many, many people call with lots of anger about why the name of our church is an abomination and it's leading people into sin and I mean, my own parents wouldn't tell their family what my church name was when I started the church because they were embarrassed of the name. So that's it's gotten a fair amount of hatred. But also I've had people say I would never consider stepping into a church. But when I saw that church name, that felt like there was a, a welcome to me in my unchurched, you know, rough around the edges conditions. I've heard that from many, many people. And um, for that reason, I'm really happy about the name. And um, we're just a crew of people who... We love Jesus and we want to follow Jesus and we want to embody Jesus in the city of Milwaukee yeah. and um, in any reach we can. So we try to take Jesus as seriously as possible because of all the voices and opinions and talking heads in our world who are distracting us. Um, we've kind of, particularly within the last few years, you're really honed in on what does Jesus have to tell us about how to live and show up in this world. Well, maybe today's the day then that I put the cards on the table a bit more and we talk about the A word, if that's all right, and that's alcohol. Okay, all right. No, not only do I drink bit, I make it as well. Wow, what do you make? What do you enjoy making? Well, over here in the past two years, there's been a company called The Pinter, and basically what they do is you buy the sachets. It's yeah. great fun to do, and then you have to then wait for brew, and then you have to then wait again to put it into condition phase and then do all this sort of stuff. And then I bottle it as well and put carb drops in. And it's great to invite my next door neighbor to try a beer as well. And I love it. It's a science experiment, right? Yeah. Well, well it's a, a cheaper way of doing and getting really, really nice beer. Good. The thing is, I could imagine now Mr. and Mrs. Angry of Pearly in Surrey all of a sudden pulling out their pen and writing a, a letter saying, how dare you talk about promoting beer or whatever. 
So from your point of view, then how would you counter that? You can go to the easy place of Jesus and the disciples and the apostles in the early church had a regular diet of wine. Who knows how much? But even Paul says in the New Testament, you know, hey, have a have a glass of wine for your stomach. So I always found that odd. I grew up in a family where alcohol was very, very frowned upon and, you know, vilified. I just found it odd. It felt like a straw man even when I was in my youth, even though I didn't drink. And um, now I've, as an adult, I've come to really enjoy things like beer and uh, whiskey, um, even though I like the wrong kind of whiskey. I'm sorry, Martin. Um, even meads are absolutely delicious. And I love the process that goes into it. I love the intentionality. I love the um, passion that goes into it from these various distillers or brewers or, you know, people at home. I think it's really, really great. And I think there's something about conversations that happen in pubs Mm -hmm. that are much, much better than conversations that happen in church spaces. There's a level of honesty and vulnerability that's there in pubs that um, you don't get at church. There's a level of um, trust even that you can be who you are and you're going to be accepted. Um, And I want to engage in those conversations. And so I fully believe you can go too far. And we have recovering addicts in our church and um, we try to honor them as best we can and receive and accept them and also not be a stumbling block for them. um, While also just realizing that um, you can do something in moderation and enjoy it, like uh, enjoying alcohol wisely, maturely. If you can't, then I'm going to pastor and, and help you encourage you to stay away from alcohol in all ways as possible. But I think like everything, it can be done in moderation. It reminds me of eating meat sacrificed to idols and that conversation that we find in, you know, the Pauline epistles of like, hey, some of you can't do it. And I totally understand. I have no problem with it. But let's let's not vilify one another for our stances based on eating meat sacrificed to idols or drinking alcohol in moderation. Well, in that case, then you've got a church and you've got three or four people coming in who are coming off addiction to alcohol. Now, I certainly know of people in the past who would have said, right, well, we won't drink beer, we won't drink wine in front of them. They would then say, that's why we don't drink, for instance. So how do you do it then? I don't drink uh, alcohol in front of or in church spaces. If it was a theology on tap or something, we've done things like that, and we do it with heavy disclaimers of, please don't come if you're you know, if you've had any issues with alcohol, we will set up a space that is um, alcohol free and we can have these conversations. But in general, I don't, you know, I, I have meetings over coffee and lunch and tea with my, you know, members of my congregation. I don't meet up for beers because again, that's something that I want to respect where everyone's at. And you can't know that when somebody says, Hey, I'd love to get together with you, pastor. I don't know where they are regarding that. So I, I wouldn't even consider doing that, to be honest with you. But with trusted friends, you know, in a podcast environment where um, that's expected, those are the venues that I feel free to en- engage with alcohol in moderation. Is it becoming less of a thorny subject now in America? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's similar. Honestly, it's similar to swearing. I think Christians are getting a little bit more and more okay and comfortable with it. I think it has to do with media and what we consume mm. and what we listen to, what we consider. But yeah, alcohol is definitely less of a taboo in some circles. In other circles, it's still very, very taboo and very, very frowned upon. But again, I want to I want to encourage spiritual maturity. Yes. And that I think re- revolves around what we do in our free time. And if we enjoy making beer or um, learning how distilling spirits happen and learning the science behind it and trying to get a good palate and trying to recognize the different tastes and notes and character in a beverage. That's a fun thing for me that um, I want to, I want to keep it safe though, because I, you know, like all of us can very quickly and easily over time get it, develop a problem and issue an unhealthy relationship with alcohol. And that's what I'm always trying to monitor in myself is, is my relationship with alcohol a healthy one or do I need to make some changes? How would you do it then? How do you keep yourself to make sure you didn't go overboard? Uh, I talk with my wife regularly because she sees who I am and what I do and what I consume and all that stuff. And um, I have just limits, you know, um, I know what I can drink and stay sober and what I when, when I get a little dangerous. So I think it's just having friends who can actually love me enough to tell me if I'm, you know, if they're noticing a pattern and um, inviting that kind of conversation and dialogue because you know it's something that you can be prone to or that's something that you can even just without realizing develop an unhealthy pattern. So I think it's just having that reality. It's kind of like, you know, I don't think I'll ever cheat on my wife, but I know I could do it. I have that in me. That actually makes me a better husband because I'm aware that I have that, you know, I actually am not trying to fool myself 
that I would never ever do that. And so now I'm more, I think I'm more aware of that within me. I remember 25 years ago going to university to help out and speak there. And one of the main speakers said that same sort of question. How many of you can honestly say you will never cheat on your future, your future wife stroke girlfriend? You know, right. And immediately loads of hands up. One of my friends, he said, well, actually, no, I couldn't put my hand up on that because you just, you just don't know. Yep. That's the thing. To be honest, I trust that person to not cheat on their spouse more than the people who raised their hand and said, I would never, ever do it. Yeah. 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 Well, here you go. I will never, ever play American football. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. fair. You know, That's going to come back on me, isn't it, in a couple of years' time? There's going to be a picture of me wearing a Green Bay Packers shirt trying to catch a ball. So how did you get involved in podcasts then? We had this gentleman who was part of our church who was in graduate school and was getting his PhD in philosophy. And he's eloquent. And so we had him host our MC, our Sunday mornings every once in a while. And he was good at it. And then we started to do these Q&As or Q&Rs, we call them now, question and response times. And where people, instead of a sermon, people, we put a number up, people can literally anonymously text in their question that they have, whether it's about the sermon series that we've been in or whether it's about anything, any difficult question or question that they've been struggling with or doubt that they've been having, they can text that in and a moderator reads it out loud and I answer on the spot. And this guy, Kyle, my philosopher friend, would serve as moderator and then he would bring his philosophical take on some some of the answers and people absolutely loved it. Um, so we kept doing it and by probably a year into doing that, we had a number of people saying, you guys got to have a podcast. Like you work and talk well together. And I love your different takes. And we are able to disagree without actually, you know, not liking each other. We're actually able to yeah. engage in that way. So after a long period of being convinced, the world does not need another 30 or 40 something year old white guy to do another podcast. But after being convinced that we could offer a, a unique space and after a friend of ours who is really good with technology agreed to come on for a short time as our producer and do editing and all that stuff. That was what made me say yes to it. And we've been having a great time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jenny Pollock is an episode is actually going out in a couple of weeks' time. It was an amazing time we had with her as a guest. It turns out that after being a missionary, she comes back and then becomes enamoured with the idea, I need to go to university and get an MA in philosophy. Mm. I said to her, well, okay, can you be a Christian and a philosopher with all this philosophizing, yeah. if that's the right word, yeah. going on? So what's your take on that? I would say yes. We've interviewed a couple of really brilliant Christian philosophers. The first that comes to mind is James K.A. Smith. He's out of Calvin College in Michigan in the U.S. here, but he does a lot of work. He might be in France right now. He's a, I think they call him a continental uh, philosopher. But because I've seen it, I, I know I've seen and, and talked to and enjoy thoroughly Christian philosophers. I think it is possible, but I do think it's difficult. That's a question that I have for my co-host over and over again is what takes precedence for you, your philosophy and your understanding of philosophy and your spirituality. And um, it's not an easy question for him. And he's different than a lot. You know, he, I, he's unorthodox in many ways because of his philosophical studies. But I think philosophers bring something to the conversation that every Christian, every religious person should listen to and consider well, because there's a lot of things about what we've been brought up in in, in the faith in the Christian tradition that doesn't really work. The logic doesn't actually move towards the truth. And I think we need to hold our faith up to the light of what philosophers bring us. And that doesn't mean that we have to, you know, change and tweak our faith in order to make it philosophically or logically correct. But there are just some things that I think I have taken for granted for a long time that in my exposure to a philosophical way of thinking, I've had to rethink. And I feel better about my faith after holding it out to the light and not being afraid of the hard questions, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned the word spirituality then, that we seem to be getting bombarded wherever you go, whatever you read. And the person says, I'm a very spiritual person. So what's that mean to you? I resonate with it deeply. Um, I think in the last several years of my, my life and my ministry, um, I've, what I'm trying to do is orient myself towards a contemplative spirituality and um, embrace the, the tradition of the mystics within our faith. Because I think there's something about um, that contemplative spirituality, that being present with the presence of God, um, being present with whoever, with you, Martin, right now, and seeing who I am in like my soul and my spirit man as being the core of who I am. Really, when I pay attention to that, 
my life just gets better. And I don't mean that, you know, I get the car that I've been wanting or, you know, uh, all the cool stuff. I just mean that I, f- I feel more at peace when I'm attentive to my soul and my spirit. I feel more like a whole person when I'm um, moving towards that contemplative spirituality, which is less words, more listening, which is less more observation, um, less critiquing, which is less judgment and more reception and invitation. So I, I love the, the idea of just, I, I really do think the Holy Spirit is working and moving and speaking in all people in all times and is not limited by our types and categories. And so I would say, yeah, look, I, I'm here for that conversation about I'm a spiritual person. I think we all are, whether we know it or not. Got you. See, the thing is, I wouldn't call what you're saying there, that was spirituality. I would think that was really good wisdom. The mm. fact that you are listening, that you've attuned yourself to understand that mm-hmm. and that you're, you know, you're starting to actually embrace who you really are, who we are as humans, that we should be listening more. We should be giving more. Yes. I just, for me, I think when you get uh, well-known people in, in UK TV land saying, oh, I'm a spiritual person. To me, that's just a, a cop out. Okay. They, they wouldn't know what it means at all. But yep. no, I really like your answer. Thank you. I would say I hope they're, you know, like, I think you're right. I think a lot of it is a cop out, but I really hope they are um, a spiritual person, you know? Yeah. But how would that then lead on to the fact that, come on then, if you really are beginning to hear these things, why have you put two and two together? And why can't you just say, okay, Jesus, you are who you are, come in. That's part of the mystery and part of the, uh, my, my spiritual director calls it the good journey, that this journey that we're all on, hopefully walking towards Jesus, you know, in different ways and different times. That's, I got to trust that that's part of the good journey for, for you, for the person that I'm talking to. But yeah, I would love for all people to say yes to Jesus, just because I think living like Jesus and following Jesus is the best way to live. You said spiritual director. Yeah. What is a spiritual director? A spiritual director is like a pastor but um, has a different level of expertise. And by that, I mean, first of all, the Catholics have been doing spiritual direction for centuries. They're, okay. you know, I think many Protestants, at least in the U.S., are starting to learn from the Catholic tradition of spiritual direction. And like Thomas Merton was a spiritual director for many, many people. It's a little bit more in the mystic tradition, but it's it's a person who, I can just tell you what my spiritual director mm. does for me, and that's helped me be attentive and mindful and present with who I really am and who God wants me to become. Um, so he uses the Enneagram. I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram or if that's a dirty word in, in your world. Someone well-known wrote a book about that a couple of years ago. I can't remember who it was. There's many books about it. It's really interesting. I'd, it'd be fun for you to look into mm-hmm. and, and do an episode about. But it's just a tool to help you better understand yourself in your strength and also in your broken uh, self as well. And so my spiritual director helps me again, get to know myself a little bit better. Like I would, if you would ask me, what's your biggest weakness or area of brokenness or area that you're, you're working on in your life, Randy? Um, I would say anger for sure. Okay. But five years ago, before I got a spiritual director and had established this relationship, I would have said probably lust, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's probably because I didn't know myself as well as I thought I did. And I didn't know my brokenness as well as I thought I did. And I didn't know what my tendencies and my defense mechanisms are. And so spiritual direction for me just helps me be a better dad with my kids. And it helps me with a discipline of welcoming the Holy Spirit into every interaction that I have. Yes. So spiritual direction is like pastoral counsel or like meeting with a spiritual director is like meeting with a pastor, except I would say they have just more attuned eyes to see what a person is living into and what's what's the invitation from the spirit and um my spiritual director works with church leaders in particular so he's a former church leader and now has gotten into spiritual direction and really he's he's specialized in spiritually directing church leaders because he knows what we go through and what we live with and all that stuff yes does that make sense it does because i think lots of people love titles anyway sure (laughs) yep that's fair in my book i'd be saying no, what you're doing is, is wisdom again. You know, you're in charge of a church and we only have to open up a newspaper to find a, a church leader that has fallen by the wayside. Yes. We've got a big one over here at the moment. I think you've got a big one over there in America as well. All the time. They're coming to fruition, unfortunately. So yes. what you're doing is wise. You are actually putting yourself before somebody else to say, okay, I might be running a church. I might be this person, but you know, I need help. I'm a human as well. Yes, absolutely. That's what you're doing in essence. But... You have to have a title. So spiritual director. 
I don't know, am yeah. I being cynical? But <laughs> I can be cynical as well. Uh, again, I can't tell you. I'm sure there's some spiritual directors or some people who adopt that term who are not really gifted at it and don't really know what it means to dwell in that land. But for me and who I've you know connected with, it, it's a really, yeah. really, really helpful, transformative um, relationship. Let's take another word that you mentioned then, if that's all right. A little knowledge is often very dangerous. That's something that I've understood <laughs> many a time in my past life. Mystic. There you go. You mentioned that. Yeah. And I can imagine from loads of people in the past going, oh, he's a mystic. That means something terrible. Yeah. Maybe not know the Bible very well or whatever. Tell us more. You know, can you be a Christian mystic, for instance? Oh, yeah. I think church history definitely shows us that you can be a Christian mystic. As a matter of fact, I think the Christian mystics are the ones we need to look to when we're in a time of crisis in our ecclesiologically or culturally. Um, I think the mystics are the prophetic voice that are calling us back to the, the real foundations of the tradition. And so that's what I think many of the desert fathers and mothers did, I think, in the you know first five centuries of the church, is um, when they would see the empire and the church colluding and growing together, they would run for the hills, literally, and leave that situation and try to prophetically point to a more pure, more beautiful, more Christ-like version of spirituality and what it means to embody Christ as the church. So have some mystics gone too, a little bit too far out there? For sure, I'm sure. But there's many, many pastors and many, many church leaders who are very, very, you know, against mystic spirituality that have fallen to the wayside, like you've just mentioned, Martin. So mm. to me, the tradition of the mystics is one where we take Jesus' words more seriously. And when I think of mystics, whether it's early church history or like I just mentioned, Thomas Merton or a number of other more modern mystics, I see people who take the words of Jesus really seriously. I see people who are take their own brokenness very seriously. I see a more quieter, rooted form of spirituality within our tradition that is really appealing to me the older I get. Um, I don't need louder and more bombastic and didactic. I need quieter, peace-filled, shalom, sitting with the presence of Christ. All of the language that I just mentioned right there, we get from the mystics. And um, I think we have a lot to learn from the mystics, balanced well with all the other traditions as well. I think we can just receive all of that goodness and build wisdom, like you've been saying. That's a word that you've been saying over and over mm. again, Martin, and I love it. I mean, I think many would say maybe John the Baptist was a mystic in the Bible. Um, I think there's um, many within the Jewish tradition that they have a rich mystical tradition that's part of our faith heritage. And it, surely the Catholic tradition has uh, a deep mystical tradition. And I know in your neck of the woods, that's saying something that's disruptive or, you know, we. I think we have something to learn from all of those traditions. If we can be humble, be learners, and root ourselves in the person of Christ, we have nothing to worry about. Just trying to scan my brain at the moment, which will take quite a long time. But how many mystics are actually mentioned in the Bible? Well, I mean, it, again, it depends on what, what your definition yeah. of mystics are, because I would say many of the Old Testament prophets would be seen as mystics in our tradition. Surely Ezekiel and Jeremiah probably the Isaiahs, but I'm, you know, that's beyond my level of expertise. Definitely the minor prophets. I think we're all more in that mystic tradition and were rejected by the mainstream Judaism in their time. Obviously they were laughed at and kicked out, but I think those were the mystics in the old Testament. I, again, I think John the Baptist was probably a mystic. Many people even think he came from the Essene tradition, which is more, very much more mystical and desert father ish. But I think the New Testament produced the mystics that we find in the early church history. Maybe we don't find a bunch of mystics in the new canon of the New Testament, but I think we see mystical tradition, the foundations of the mystical tradition from the New Testament, if that makes sense. Now it does. So just summarize for me then what mysticism as far as a Christian, as far as the Bible is concerned, means then. Uh, to me, it means somebody who is um, more focused on the presence and voice of the Holy Spirit, I think is a very mystical, that sounds terrible, um, but uh, more in that mystic tradition. So I think being attentive to the person and voice and presence of the Holy Spirit and letting that voice be authoritative, even though that's really arduous to know mm -hmm. what's my vo what's not my voice and what's the Holy Spirit's voice, all that stuff. But I think an attentiveness to the Spirit is a huge thing. And then I think a person who wants in a more embodied spirituality I think is part of the mystic tradition where you want a spirituality that's going to be transformative 
in all the ways and even in ways that I can sit and be present with creation. I think that's a part of the mystic tradition. Like we would see Francis of Assisi. I think that's a really good embodiment of what it looks like to be a mystic is to love and enjoy God's creation and see God in God's creation. Um, because the apostle Paul says Christ is all and is in all. And so I think a, a job of mystics is to see that Christ in all and to name it for us and to point us to the life of Christ that's all around us all the time. It's where the tradition of mystics doesn't appeal to us. I think we, we can all learn from the mystics mm. to say God's creation is good and, and God is somehow mysteriously in it. Like Paul says, all of creation is groaning for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. The Psalms animate and kind of personify nature in, you know, Psalm after Psalm of the oceans, roar your praise, all of this. I think David was a mystic to be sure. And the psalmists were mystics. And I think whether or not that tradition appeals to us, we can all learn from it. Yeah, yeah. It's if, yet again, as if we get hung up on a word. Yes. Because I think from what you're saying, great. Okay, I understand where you come from, a mystic. But you could then say, oh, yes, but weren't you around in the 1960s, you know, when we had all the Asian and Indian influences? Yes, yes. That's what mysticism is. And yet we don't fully understand what a mystic is from a Christian viewpoint. Yes. And it's the word. And I know for a fact that when I first was told about, oh, you can't go and do yoga because they meditate. <gasps> the M word, meditate. Oh, you know, that's obviously a Far Eastern religion sort of thing. And then you open up the Bible and it talks about meditating. You know, meditating so, on the word of God. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with it. So maybe we just get hung up again on words and titles. I think so. Yep. And get to the basics. Time out, Martin. I'm hoping you're not hearing my dog in the background. Well, if we are, he's welcome to join. Okay, all right, right. He might want to tell us some news. <laughs> I'm not that mystical. What kind of dog is he? He is a mini Bernadoodle, which I have no idea how that works, but he's a, a mini poodle mixed with a Bernese mountain dog, which is oh, right. huge. Yeah. But uh, long story short, he's hypoallergenic, which me and my son need, and he's a cute little puppy. So, yeah. Brilliant. Well, let's go then. Obviously, we're, we're opening up so many proverbial cans of worms here. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about this quote that you had. You very kindly actually put on Twitter. Yesterday, I was called a false prophet, blasphemer, a wolf and a heretic, all because I don't believe in biblical inerrancy. And we wonder why young people are leaving churches in droves. Yeah. Tell me more, please. Christian Twitter can be a really, really brutal place where it seems like people, it doesn't seem like people, people are just really, really terrible to one another. And so I just literally tweeted out, I think it was something to the effect of the Bible gets so much more fun and enjoyable and interesting when you drop the idea of biblical inerrancy. And it, the way it went was a lot of people loved it. And then enough people loved it. It showed up in the feeds of people who would, you know, think you're not a Christian if you don't believe that the Bible is inerrant. So then it was just a huge mess of me being called all sorts of things, like I just mentioned, you know, in your in the quote that you just mentioned. And it's really sad to me that we can't just have a really charitable conversation, a loving conversation about why I don't believe in biblical inerrancy, but I still believe in the authority of the scriptures and the inspiration of the scriptures and why you don't, why you do and why that's important to you. And we can sit down and talk and um, disagree with one another and still love one another. That's what we're missing, I think, in a lot of these conversations. So it's an it's an odd feeling to publicly be called a wolf or a wolf in sheep's clothing or a heretic or an apostate or a, you know a son of the devil. I could go on and on, but it's it's a weird feeling. And after a while, you just have to just realize. I think I'm rooted in Christ. I think I'm you know I love the Bible and I take the scriptures seriously. And at the end of the day, I'm okay with people thinking that that's not enough. Well, I went for a walk this morning with a friend of mine, and I was saying about this quote and inerrancy, and he actually asked me, what does that word mean? And I'm glad he did because I had to look it up the, the day before yeah. because sometimes we throw all these words and people don't know what it means. So what does inerrancy actually mean, please? A real clear understanding of what inerrancy means would be just to read through the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy from 1978 because that's when really the idea was birthed, was with a bunch of evangelical leaders, pastors, writers, authors who said we need to just really clearly articulate what biblical inerrancy means. And the long and short of it, as I have heard it, is that to believe in biblical inerrancy means that the Bible is completely without error in its original manuscripts. That's fine. Like, that's mm -hmm. something that, like, I could believe that. Um, but the thing is, is I don't need to. 
in order for the Bible still to have authority in my life. And there's a couple of issues with it. First of all, we don't have those original manuscripts that they talk about. So it's kind of a moot point to say, well, the original manuscripts are perfect and without error. What we have isn't those. Well, let's just talk in reality. We don't have those original manuscripts. And then also there are inconsistencies in the Bible. You know, I mean, your atheist friend or whoever you've had conversations with or even debates with about the scriptures, oftentimes they're right in that, you know, the gospel accounts differ. And it makes sense that they differ because this is yes. written 2,000 years ago from different people who had different vantage points, some who were eyewitnesses, some who were hearing secondhand. And of course, they're going to be different. And I think the Bible is richer because of those differences and those differences yes. of a perspective. But the fact of the matter is, is that James in his theology has a lot of issues inherently with Paul and his theology, you know, and I think that's brilliant and beautiful, but sometimes it doesn't work together perfectly. And we, that's part of the work of exegesis and um, of understanding the scriptures is looking at those differences and sitting with them, not trying to wash them, but say, what do we have to learn from James? And what do we have to learn from Paul without saying that they're the same voice or, you know, there's obviously events that happen within the history of the Israelite people within first and second Chronicles and first and second Kings that are speaking about the same thing and saying, have a different account, have something that's completely contradictory. And again, I think that makes sense because God works through human beings to communicate God's self and to reveal God's self and human beings. Last I checked, every single one of us are flawed and aren't perfect. And I think that's the way God chooses to communicate and reveal God's self is through fallible human beings like you and I. Now, are we on the level of the biblical writers? Probably not. But at the same time, I think there is as much as inspiration and spirit and um, is in those words of the scriptures. There's also humanity. There's human fingerprints all over the scriptures that I don't think we need to run from or shy away from. And I think when we talk about young people leaving the church in droves, usually it's the young people who are honest enough to say, hey, that's inconsistent or that doesn't you know, that's different than what we see here, blah, blah, blah. They're willing to ask those questions rather than hide from them yeah. or to build a straw man argument that tries to make it go, the argument go away that doesn't really work for young people. And the more we tell them, well, the Bible's inerrant, and if you don't believe it's all inerrant, if you don't believe it's all literal, you can't be a Christian. And then you have tons of young people saying, well, I guess I can't be a Christian because I'm a serious person who takes yeah. you know, sacred text seriously. So I think the argument for inerrancy is an argument that is repelling people thoughtful people away from the church, and it doesn't have to be that way. I hope I answered your question with some sense of, you know, clarity. You did, thank you, because this is a conversation I had this morning. The only thing I could come up with was God created the world in seven days. But then if he created in seven days, how could he? Because, you know, what did he do on day one? And even going to the creation story, I'm glad you brought that up, Martin. Many of us don't even realize that we have two creation stories in the book of Genesis. Genesis 1 yes. in that account is very different than Genesis 2 in that account of creation. And again, I don't think that's something that we have need to run from or shy away from or try to explain away. We can say, wow, what a fun methodology we have modeled for us in the first two chapters of our sacred text, which is God wants to tell his people what God's heart was in creating the world and creating all that came to be, what God's heart was in creating humanity and God's, God's own image and what God's heart was in making men and women partner together in this good creation that he created for us. There's so much richness in those two stories that we get to glean from rather than try to pretend that they are the same exact story. They're not. And that's, I think, why, again, our, the way we approach the scriptures matters in how thoughtful we are, but also... Um, I think really matters when we talk about, do we want young people to engage with the church? If we want young people to engage with the church, whether we're in the UK, whether we're in Northern Ireland, whether we're in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, we have to allow these questions to see the light of day. Otherwise, I think young people can see the hypocrisy of it right through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All I know is, is that for me, I've always been like a why child, always asking yes. questions. And I've been fortunate enough to be in churches whereby they've accepted me for who I am. You know, a rough diamond in the making. <laughs> yeah, you can ask questions. And I think that's the, that's the thing. Certainly, you've got to have that safe environment. Have we lost that now, do you think, that whereby people can ask questions? And why have we yeah, lost it? No, I do think in many ways we've lost it. But I think there are Christians and churches and church leaders who are growing in openness to wonder 
and curiosity and being able to ask questions, have doubts. This is called faith, not certainty that we engage in and that we're called to. We believe in something pulses that we can't see. And that's why Jesus is so brilliant because he's the, the image of the invisible God. But I would hope that we are more open to asking questions in the church because I really do believe if we're not, if we want to just give the pat answers, if we want to build our faith that's a Jenga tower, it will fall apart yeah. and young people aren't going to want to have anything to do with it. As you heard at the beginning of my podcast entrance, I talk about those who don't go to church more and those who are disillusioned. It. Why are people getting so delusioned now, do you think? Disillusioned, yeah. Um, you could do a whole podcast series on why church people are disillusioned or ex-church people are disillusioned with the church. Yeah. But I think the inherent hypocrisy that they find in the church and church leaders, I think the, um, the intellectual dishonesty and anti-intellectualism that they see within the church is repelling them. I think the judgmentalism that they see within the church is repelling them. There's a whole host and list of things that I think are repelling them that I think are in the U.S. at least, the way the Protestant church has presented and positioned ourselves within culture has more to do with right-wing politics in the U.S. than it does with the way of Jesus. And I think young people can see right through that. Yeah, we seem to be reading that over here. A Protestant is a Republican, for instance. Yes. I don't know how true that is. Hopefully becoming less and less true. And God bless Republicans, God bless Democrats. I'm not saying there's a right way or a wrong way as far as our country's politics, but... Um, I'm pretty open and honest to say that Trumpism is not the way of Jesus. And also that we can be Democrats or we can be Republicans. We can be whatever it is, you know, for you and Tories. And, um, you know, we can be liberal. We can be conservative, whatever it is. And follow the way of Jesus and have the way of Jesus win the day, not our chosen political party or ideology. But that's too often what's happening. And I think that's why young people are seeing right through that. I can't remember the lady's name. I shared this some time ago on a podcast, so forgive me if I'm repeating it if you've heard the story, but I wasn't actually a Christian at the time. I was going to church, and I even became a Sunday school teacher, right? <laughs> so I didn't quite put two and two together. Love it. Anyway, so I was about 19 or 20, and they invited me to go on a, a weekend retreat for fellow Sunday school teachers, so I did. And it was against my principles because it meant I couldn't go to the pub on a Friday night with my mates, and more importantly, I was missing a football match on Saturday. You know, very important. But, you know, I went. I went reluctantly. And it was like we'd finished uh, about 8 o'clock Saturday night. And I went up to the lady and I said, can I go to the pub tonight? I know it's about two miles away. We're miles from nowhere. But, you know, would you mind if I went to the pub tonight? And she said, well, I've got a question to ask you. She said, what was the first miracle Jesus ever did? I thought, well, I know this answer. <laughs> Turn water into wine. And she said, yes. She said, well, personally, I don't drink alcohol, she said, but I don't have a problem with going to pubs to having nice meals and stuff like that. Wow. And do you know what was so amazing about that? Because I was at that time of life whereby things were starting to make sense. But if she had said to me, because of my incredible insecurities in those days, mm. I'm still fairly insecure now, but compared to where I was back then, if she said, well, no, Martin, you can't be a Christian and go to the pub, I most probably would have said, do you know what? Okay, then. You're right. Yeah. I won't go to pubs anymore. I'll abstain from it and all that sort of stuff. Looking back on it now, she was incredibly helpful because she put aside the coin to me what she believed in, but she wasn't going to hold anything against me. Brilliant. I wish more of us could do that. Stop projecting ourselves onto you know people and give freedom and uh, trust the Holy Spirit. The voice of the Holy Spirit sounds like that's what she was doing within you. Mm. I love it when when leaders do that. It's it's so difficult as a leader to, I think, present options and choices for people. I try to do this for my kids as a, as a parent as well, but to trust the guidance and leadership of the Holy Spirit in people's lives is a scary thing to do as a leader, but I think it's a very, very wise and mature thing to do. So good on that woman for yeah. giving you that answer. Yeah, and I'm still here despite everything. Amen. So where's the church and where are you going to be going in the, in the nearby future, do you think? I think I'm um, just trying to be a prophetic witness within our culture to call people back to the way of Jesus from their, you know, media or political talking heads to, um, I think a huge problem is just the syncretism we've had with mixing religion with politics. And um, I think our church is going to continue to call people back into following the way of Jesus, not our, our favorite loud mouth. And also just trying to manifest the kingdom of God in in the place where we find ourselves. And so for that, that means for us, Milwaukee is 
you know, by data, the most segregated city in the United States of America. Mm. I could tell you stories about how there's a, a street that basically is kind of the dividing line between black and white people in the, in the city of Milwaukee. It grieves the heart of Jesus. It grieves me. Yeah. And I think it's our job as the church to manifest a different way. But it's really hard when you have decades and decades and decades of policy and of ways of living and interacting with one another as white and black people in, in, in our city that I think are fully from, you know, the pit of hell, as uh, my you know old charismatic preacher would have said. And so I think our job is to fight against that reality and to point people to a better way that I think looks more like new creation. And so we're going to continue following the spirit as well and where the spirit leads us and what the spirit calls us to go into and to um, talk about. We're going to, we're pretty dedicated to doing that. And we as leadership even say, everything that we do is an experiment because we think that the Holy Spirit is leading us in this direction, but we're human beings who get things wrong. And so we, we might shut this down in a, in a couple months or in a year or two, because obviously we were wrong. And so we try to cultivate that kind of environment where we're operating in a dependence on the on the leadership of the spirit while knowing that we don't get it right every single time. Yeah, but wouldn't the cynic then say, oh, we couldn't be listening to the spirit in the first place, can't trust you. <laughs> well, I think if that's your perspective, this might not be the best place for you because um, we do try to humbly follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. We do think the Holy Spirit does truly lead us, but again, I haven't seen one human being who's ever gotten 100% grade on listening to the voice of the Spirit and being right every single time. Great answer. Thank you. I think it's basic to sum it all up, what you're saying then is that instead of looking at little points, we should take you know, the bigger points that actually what Christianity is all about. Yes. Because we could have arguments to the cows come home about certain things. You know, certain certain words that yes. will immediately trigger somebody off and say well okay but how actually important is that and of course they're going to come back and say oh it's very important yeah but is it i think that's good i think i look at what the apostle paul said in the beginning of his letter to the church in ephesus where he said god's purpose was this to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth in the person of christ jesus and so i if we're taking that seriously it's our job to say god's trying to bring unity to all things in existence in the universe including and especially the church, if we take John 17 seriously. And so I think we need to come to a place where we can humbly say, I disagree with you about certain things, but we, we have Jesus in common, and that's enough for us to, to be brothers and sisters. Yeah, I mean, I disagree with you on key points like Green Bay Packers <laughs> and that sport. You know, sorry, there's only one sport, and it's not yours. Absolutely, 100%. I'll learn from you in your pure football ways, Martin. <laughs> yeah, if only, if only. How do we get the disillusioned people back into church then? Or should I say, maybe not church, because this could be moving into a whole new area. How do we get people back into trusting in Jesus? Yeah, I think that's the most important. Church is important, and I hope people do come back to church. But, I mean, I've been asking that question of myself for the last, I would say, four years. I think we have to get really creative. And I think how we think about things and how we talk about things really matters to people who are disillusioned with the church. I think being honest about our shortcomings as the church and as church leaders is really important to people who don't want anything to do with the church. I think listening to people who are disillusioned is really, really essential. If we're not listening to them, but trying to talk over them all the time, they'll never come back to Jesus. And I think things like projects like you're doing, Martin, like podcasts are a safer space for many people who have left the church and say, I can't do that, but I can listen to this one hour long podcast, or I, you know, however mm. long it is, I can sit with that and what they're bringing me. I think podcasts uh, are part of a, a form of communication that are way back in. And we've heard that feedback, and I'm sure you have as well of, from our podcast of, you know, we had a person in Ethiopia tell us, I grew up in a, you know, very, very traditional, strict Christian home, and I got to college and I was done with it. I was ready to, I left the church, and then I stumbled across your podcast, and I'm back in. That's why I'm doing the podcast, because I think there are people who are searching or disillusioned or have left the church, mm -hmm. but they haven't left Jesus. They don't want to leave Jesus, but they're just looking for something to hold on to. And I think conversations like this are that thing that they can hold on to and maybe even grab hold of and embrace and call their own, hopefully. And by call their own, I mean, see that Jesus is really beautiful. See that Jesus is everything to them and ask the questions of what now then? Brilliant. Well, if people want to get hold of you, good sir, uh, and maybe write a letter or a letter. Do people write letters? <laughs> Send a postcard. I want to contact you. 
How can they do that? Yeah, I'm um, two ways. Uh, I'm I'm a pastor, so you can go to brewcitychurch.org. All my sermons are there and info about our church. And then you can actually see my email on there. So brewcitychurch.org, you can email me there. Or um, a pastor and a philosopher walk into a bar, search that. You'll find our Buzz Sprout page. Also, we have our email is pastorandphilosopher at gmail.com. So that's pastorandphilosopher at gmail.com. Or reach out to me on social media. There's all sorts of ways. So pretty easy, and I'd love to hear from anyone. Yeah, thank you. Well, it just remains for me to say we have one more question for you, good sir. All right. I thought you did. <laughs> and this is uh, the Christian Hero slot. It's something I used to do for years and years when I was a radio presenter. And whoever I was interviewing, I'd get that person at the end to talk for two minutes on their Christian Hero. And just like everything in life, you know, you have certain parameters. And uh, my parameter was basically that A had to be dead. Okay. So that basically, you know, can say, oh, well, you know, what about such and such? Look what's happened to him or her. Uh, as we've already alluded to in the past, this person cannot be mentioned in the Bible because I have learned from reading biographies and learning how they put their Christian faith into practice. So, Randy Nye, yeah. pastor of Brew City Church, Milwaukee, or as Alice Cooper would say, Milwaukee, I think that's what it was in Waynesville. Who is your Christian hero? <laughs> the good land. It depends on, you know, like maybe two years from now, I'll have a different one because I, you know, my attention or curiosity is is tweaked by this, you know, certain people. But for a long time, Athanasius was my, you know, church father crush, my spiritual hero. And the reason for that is just because Athanasius was one of those desert fathers who stood for what I think is the truth of who is the person of Christ and what's the nature of Christ. And he was rejected for it. He was exiled numerous times, sent off to the desert because he stood firm on what his vision of Christ was and I think saved the the doctrine of the Trinity in the fourth century. So Athanasius has always been possibly my favorite. And Gregory of Nyssa in the Cappadocian Fathers, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus, um, Basil the Great, I think, those guys have this vision of spirituality and Christ that I think are just stunning and beautiful, and um, I've learned so much from. So it, it has been Athanasius, now it's becoming more and more Gregory of Nyssa and the Cappadocians. Wow. Well, I think you've named quite a few there that nobody's ever chosen before. <laughs> Look, into him. Look into him. <laughs> well, tell me a bit more about Athanasius then, please. I mean, it's, again, he was, uh, I think he was the Bishop of Alexandria, and he he fought with, you've, have you heard of the Arian controversy? It was rooted around the, the Nicene Creed and the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century, and the nature of Christ was was what was at stake, and the Arians believed that Jesus was, and I'm no theologian, so don't hold me to being 100% accurate here, but the Arians believed that Jesus was fully man, but not fully God. And Athanasius believed that Jesus was fully God and fully man, and had this triune understanding of the nature of who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that was what was at stake in these controversies and these debates, and within the Council of Nicaea. And thank God Athanasius and his followers won the day. And I would say Gregory of Nyssa was also, he was the kind of the the signer of the the Nicene Creed and, you know, our, their contemporaries. But this idea of the notion of the nature of Christ was such a controversial and debated, hotly debated topic through mm. the first few centuries of the church. When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? That's a loaded concept in the first several centuries of the church, trying to make sense of who Jesus is and was and all that. And I think brave brave people like athanasius um we we have what we have in our theology and doctrine because of people who stood firm like athanasius how did he die i don't know actually i hope and think he died of old age i don't think he was executed that i don't know something in the back of my mind says that somebody might have actually chosen him years and years and years ago i have to check that one out now <laughs> yeah yeah no it's fascinating stuff in his book on the incarnation is possibly the the foundational work within church Christian theology about the nature and um, meaning of and the effect of the incarnation on this world, on the universe, and on our faith. Um, Athanasius had a real, real clear handle. And I think we in the modern postmodern church need a better vision of the incarnation because it, I think it would shape our spirituality in different ways that we haven't because we focus so much on the crucifixion and resurrection, which is really, really foundational but not as much on the notion of the incarnation, which I think the the biblical writers and the early church fathers saw that as almost equally as essential to our salvation, um, the incarnation. 
in the last 30 seconds then tell us more about the incarnation then why it's so important <laughs> well it's a um it's a spirituality that that engages not only engages but dives into the messy world around and um you know read through philippians 2 the first first half of philippians 2 where paul talks about this kenosis the self-emptying of god that's the greek word there and how jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather emptied himself of everything in order to give life to all things and all people. And that's a beautiful vision. And I think it's something that the church can do well to imitate and embody, to not build ivory towers where we have holy huddles and clubs that are trying to keep all the dirty, rotten people in the world out, but actually says, how can we embody this faith in the world? And, um, become previews or trailers for the resurrection and new creation and show what life in Christ looks like rather than withdraw, if that makes sense. Thank you so much. You know, you know we can look at the gray areas some other time. Let's look at the, the black and white truths. And would I be right in saying that he was the one that was actually promoting the idea of the Trinity? Because I think if you look in the Bible, there's no mention of the Trinity in the Bible, is there? Oh, it's all over it. But Correct. is he the chapter flew the flag for that? Yes, I would say. And you'd have to go to a church historian and they would their answer would be a lot more authoritative than mine but i would say athanasius was if not the most important person in preserving the doctrine of the trinity he was definitely one of the most important persons in keeping in stilling the the doctrine of the trinity in, in christianity yes well, i'm gonna have to look him up next the first thing to do is ask you off air how to spell his name <laughs> yes 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 i've got a feeling it begins with the letter a it could be wrong. Yes, yes. Sound it out. Google will help, I promise. Um, <laughs> I have a friend who is a church historian at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, and um, he would be the person to talk about Athanasius or the Cappadocian Fathers and why they were so influential. Wow. Well, let's talk about that later. Listen, thank you so much for joining us. I can't believe that the hour, is, well, more than that, has just gone whoosh. Randy Nye, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Martin. Blessings to you. Jeez, thank you. Good bless.